You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello, superstars, and welcome back to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. And as I said already, now OsorioMD.com. The podcast continues to be the core of our discussion, and we continue to grow. So thank you so far for downloading 13,500 plus times all over the world. I really thank you for that and keep sharing, keep listening. And now my platform in YouTube is going to get stronger. We're going to get more audio, visual content that is going to be a little bit more generic, not only for the doctors, for the medical students, but also for the people, our patients, you know, educational, motivational, etc. So today we have Dr. Amr Aldin. He is the Chief Medical Officer for uh, United States Acute Care Solutions, U.S. Acute Care Solutions, based out of Canton, Ohio. And I can say it's one of the largest emergency medicine groups in the nation. We're talking in the United States and most likely in the world. Dr. Amir is a graduate also of medicine of the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And he has a bachelor's degree that was focused in religious studies. Despite the fact that he didn't go on to become a professor in religious studies and had a significant discussion about this with his father, who is an Indian-Pakistani family immigrant to the United States, they had a conversation. I don't know how long this lasted or how it took on, but led him to become a doctor of medicine. And after that, he proceeded to choose emergency medicine as the specialty of his choice. And he attended Northwestern uh, Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. And... About three years ago, not only due to professional moves but, uh, and professional decisions that he has made throughout his life, but also through tennis, he has decided to move to Florida, and now we met in Florida. So this, the, the, how we met, the story goes like this, right? Doctor, uh, uh, My wife was like the school, uh, school liaison for the parents, for the pre-K kids, and his wife said, hey, you play tennis? Yeah, I do play tennis. Oh, my husband plays real, uh, really good tennis. By the way, he's a really good tennis player. And then, oh, my wife said, oh, Alonso plays tennis as well. They might probably connect and probably hit it up. And actually, that's what we did. So I'm going to introduce you as a great tennis player. And I think he's a competitive, successful career mimics his competitive behavior on the tennis court because he runs to every single shot and never gives up. 
and he injures me over and over and over and over. We haven't played in a while. Physically, he outruns me. He used to be a huge soccer player. Anyway, having said all that about you that I think are fantastic, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking this time of your life to be with me. And I just appreciate it. I know that my, 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 my listeners are going to really, really be interested in what we're going to be talking about. I appreciate it, Alonso. Thanks very much. And uh, the reason I have to run so much in tennis is because you're running me around in tennis. So if I'm a great uh, tennis player, uh, Dr. Osorio is, is an even better one. So I, I, it's an honor to be on the court with you and an honor to be here. Fantastic. Dr. Amer, you and I have had literally discussions during tennis about what has been so far your professional career and I've been always remarkably surprised of how an emergency physician became such a successful executive in corporate America and specifically in healthcare. And one of the topics that we want to discuss today and the reason why we bring Dr. Aldin is due to the fact that I see the need for foreign and international medical graduates to consider career development, not only in medicine, but professionally in other endeavors. We're not only physicians, and Dr. Amer sent me a few little sketches and notes on what we wanted to talk about. And I found really interesting the fact that, you know, you've been competing for so long in medical school, in undergrad, to be top of your class. And you said that being a great doctor is not anymore about personal success. It's more about the success of your coworkers, the success of the group, the success of the people. And many of us doctors that immigrate here to America have no clue, no clue how corporate America works, how you become and walk the walk and talk the talk and present yourself in a way that you are chosen to become someone like you, a chief medical officer for a very large, important corporation in healthcare in the United States. So, Having said that, I'll pass it on to you. Thanks, uh, Dr. Osorio. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I think the, the biggest thing that I learned and, and the way that I got to where I am, much of what I, uh, pushed me to this area, was the understanding that um, all of us are, are good physicians. Some of us are very great physicians. And I think being a great physician, what that gives you is being able to take patients of your own very, very well, take care of them very, very well. It also does is because you're a great physician, it puts you in the stage and gives you the ability to be a great leader or administrator. But what I want to stress to you here is that while being a great physician gives you the ability to be a great leader or administrator, it doesn't mean you're automatically a great leader or administrator. You have the tools, you have the intellect, but there's different rules, there's different success metrics, up to now, you've led yourself to clinical success with medical school, studying hard there, residency, studying hard, working hard there, sleepless nights, you know, 80-hour work weeks, things like that. And then post-residency, of course, I'm sure you've worked hard. But now you're in a position where it's not about how well you do clinically, individually. It's about how well you move the entire team forward with your leadership skills. And one of the really important points that I learned is just because you're good clinically doesn't mean you're automatically going to be good administratively or as a leader. You need to train yourself for that. You need to learn that. And of course, you have the ability. You're smart enough, absolutely, as a physician. You're smart enough to do it and you've got all the tools, but it doesn't happen automatically. You really need to 
to work hard at it and to train yourself to do it. And so I, I always urge others, physicians who are trying to move up in the administrative realm, uh, especially international medical graduates, foreign medical graduates, you got to train yourself. It's a new type of training, new way of thinking. Obviously, we're so busy during the first few years that we come into America first, trying to pass the boards, then get credentialed by the ECFMG, then finding a residency position. And then when you find yourself in residency training, there is all these American grads that have master's degrees in business administrations, master's degrees in public health, master's degrees in healthcare administration. And they have a different perspective sometimes to put on the table. And my question throughout my life, you know, I'm now 42, by the way, Dr. Murr is my age. He's barely 43. And, and the question that I ask myself, I'm always checking, what am I doing the next five years of my life? How do I see myself in the next five years? How do I see myself in the next 10 years? So obviously you said that as a doctor, you come with the right tools, with the right knowledge, with the right set of skills. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will be a good administrator. But here it goes. Do you need an MBA behind your name? Or do you need the chief, the College of Physician Executives initials behind your name to prove that you can be a good leader, administrator in corporate America and in healthcare? It's a great question. I hear this asked a lot. I think the answer to the question is no, but, no but. And the but is that pursuing an MBA, pursuing a, uh, a fellowship in the ACHE, these kinds of things, it's not the letters themselves. It's really what you're gaining, what knowledge you're gaining with those, with those courses, with those certifications, with those degrees. So if you want to get higher up in administration, learning that material, you can either do by yourself or with mentors and self-study, or you can do it in a structured way if you have the time, the energy, frankly, the money these days because of how much MBA programs cost. Certainly those programs will teach you those skills. They're not necessarily enough to teach you everything, and you can get it outside of that. I personally do not have an MBA, but several of my excellent colleagues do. I see the strengths of an MBA, certainly. Uh, I, I didn't choose to go that route. I thought about it very, very hard and very long. I didn't choose to go that route, partly because it was so expensive and partly because I was able to gain the skills, many of the skills I needed uh, without that. Now, there's always a role, not just for the MBA. There's the, that, the FACHE you talked about, the fellowship there. There's also executive education courses that occur at your local university. Those can be very helpful, much more cost-effective. Um, let me give you one example. As a physician, you may feel like your finance and your, your knowledge of economics is not as good. Well, take an executive ed course at a local university on that. It probably costs a couple thousand dollars as opposed to an MBA, these days, executive MBAs can cost up to 80000 a year. That's $160,000 in, in some cases. So, so plus, I think that- Plus, plus yeah. the time, being away from the family, oh, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even if a lot of it's online, that, that's great that it's online. It's still a huge amount of work. There are healthcare-focused MBAs. Those may be um, even better, even more applicable. But I'm not convinced an MBA is necessary, although it, it, it certainly does help. So- I call all this professional career development. I know that at the very beginning of your career, you were heavily linked with education and you were the assistant program director for an emergency medicine program, correct? Yes, that's and correct. And then suddenly that kind of 
starts taking off as a leader. You're the residency program director, which I think is a big deal in the U.S. And then suddenly you become an emergency physician in a local emergency department. And then you give, are given the chance to be the medical director there and things jobs keep getting better. So this, this, this professional career development uh, happened spontaneously. Did you see yourself in this position? Did it go along with your personality? Did you find a mentor? Somebody, somebody pointed at you, your wife, your father. Hey, Amer, I think you could be a great leader in medicine. How that spark was created? Yes to all of the above. No <laughs> I think it's, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. I was in residency education. I was the associate residency director. At one point, I asked myself, do, wanna, do I want to be a full residency director? And I, and I kept answering myself, no, I didn't want to do that. And then I thought, well, if I'm not going to be a residency director, why am I the associate residency director? I should move into uh, administration operations. And so I did. I think one of the things that that taught me that initial move was it's okay to change. Change is good. It feels uncomfortable, but that's okay. And then the next change was even bigger, which was, okay, I'm in academia. I was a educator to a certain extent, a researcher. And uh, one of the things I learned was I really liked the operations. I liked the admin. I liked the management piece of it, but academia didn't afford the options, at least not, not Northwestern at that time, didn't afford the options to really move up. And, uh, you know, one of my best friends was the medical director at Northwestern and I, and he was younger than me. And I thought, wow, I'm not, I'm not moving up there. And, uh, Northwestern was a great place. I loved it, but leaving it was the best professional decision I ever made because I put myself in a position to challenge myself, to, to put myself as the medical director and chair of a community emergency department coming out of academics. And the lesson that I learned there, first of all, it, it kicked my butt. I, mean, yeah, it's not I learned a lot. And I, I had to learn quickly and I made lots of mistakes and, and I didn't do as well as I could have or should have, but gosh, it was the right move. I, I think taking risk and seizing opportunity to move up puts you out of your comfort zone. And for too long, I think it's because of our training. We're out of our, we're constantly in school, right? As physicians, constantly in school, we finally get to our attending job and we're like, all right, let's just sit for a second and not do anything. That's great. That's a good feeling to have. The problem is you can very quickly become into a, a place you can't get out of. You can't change from and you can't develop. And so I challenge you to challenge yourself to go and take those risks, try that new thing, you know, serve on that committee, do those things. That's the only way you can move forward. It's not by being comfortable. It's by being uncomfortable. And I, I think uh, personally, that's what I have found the difficulty of finding the balance in between family life, administrative life, and clinical medicine. I, I think I love my daily practice of emergency medicine, and I know that you still practice clinical emergency medicine. You still do your shifts because you like it, obviously, and it keeps you in contact with the people, keeps you in contact with the patient, keeps you in contact with the situation of the, the workers, the working bees. But for me, the struggle is balancing the amount of money that you get paid well clinically versus the amount of money that you get reimbursed with your stipend for administration. And, and as you said, it could be grueling as the chief uh, of uh, the department of an, emer uh, an emergency room anywhere in the United States, they will literally could suck the blood out of you because it doesn't matter if it's Saturday or Sunday, New Year's, uh, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, 
you name it, any holiday, any day, you are the appointed person that must answer the, the call from the CEO, CNO, you know, whoever, colleague or consultant that wants to complain about your peers, yourself, anywhere. How, how did you get to balance that tight, narrow walk, especially having little kids, a young wife, new marriage, etc., and a huge student loan? <laughs> yeah, well, I was lucky with the student loans part. I had paid those off earlier on before I got to my medical director job. So that, and at that time, the student loans were not nearly, I mean, the fees were not nearly as high and I went to a state school. So one, one thing that was lucky is, is I, was, I was able to pay those off. The other balance part, and I'd love to be able to say, oh, I did this amazing thing I did. There is no balance. It's really hard to balance. You have to just accept the fact that balance is, is you, you can be crooked in that and still that's balance. You're, you're kind of barely holding it together at some times, and, but that's okay. The ability to forgive yourself for not being so perfect or try to do everything exactly right, that's okay. You got to be able to do that. We don't do that well as physicians. We don't forgive ourselves well. We don't get the B's on the tests. We don't uh, not take the calls and things like that. I think it's okay to try things, make mistakes. The two keys is number one, be willing to make mistakes. But more importantly, number two, be willing to get past those mistakes and rise again and, and work hard and learn from them. The humility needed to be a great leader uh, is, is very, very important. It's very high, high need for that is, is to understand that you're not always right and you're willing to learn and you're willing to get better. Being a leader is being humble and is not about being selfish and, you know, using that position for your own benefit is to empower your team. What have you learn over the years on empowering people, making them work through change, optimizing processes and all those little things that we need to deal with on a regular basis? Yeah. So I think the most important thing about being a leader is that it's not about you. Being a leader is not about you. It's about the people you're leading around you. It's just like being a teacher is not about you. It's about the student. Being a physician is not about you. It's about the patient. So if you understand that being a leader is about those who work with you, for you, follow you, things like that, then the entire, the entire situation is, is, is made easier because you understand your focus. You do better when they do better. Uh, you're a better leader when those around you are working with you and for you do better. So you have to have that mentality. It requires a great deal of self-awareness. A lot of people don't have it when they start and they get it later on. And the ability to see yourself from the outside and see how you're perceived is very, very important. Look, recent experts call this emotional intelligence. I think, I think that's an extremely important uh, concept. It's stuff you don't really learn that much about your, uh, yourself in, in medical school and residency. But I got to say, of all the things I ever learned since I joined at the time, it was EMP. Now it's uh, USACS. Um, that's been the most important to me and the most uh, fulfilling and the most developing is, is learning who I am and who I am as a leader, how I'm perceived and how I need to be better uh, than I was. Tell us about perception. You said how you're being perceived. Obviously, you're Dr. Amar Aldean. You're a husband. You're a father of three beautiful young girls. You're a tennis player. You carry yourself a certain way. What's about perception in America? Tell us about that because many people said, Alonso, it's about how you are being perceived. 
Yeah, I think you have to understand that the way you see yourself is not the way everyone sees you. I think that understanding that point and understanding that you're not all right about how you see you and they're not all right about how they see you. So there's the truth lies somewhere in between. It's very, very easy to do that second part to understand, well, they don't really know me. Uh, they don't know who I am. That's easy. It's really, oh, I don't really know me. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I look like to others. It's like when, when you listen to your voice on a voicemail, you're like, do I sound like that? When you see yourself in a picture, like, gosh, do I look like that? Yes. It's the same thing in meetings and, and administrative circles. And, and believe me, putting the microscope on yourself is very difficult, but it's so necessary to move forward. I think that's one of the most important parts of being a great leader. And it's not something you're taught as a physician, but again, the ability to be humble, the the ability to do things well is part of being a great physician. And so we have the tools. One of the things that I think uh, makes you successful and take it as a compliment, I think you're a great communicator. I think uh, obviously since you're a very fluent English uh, speaker, despite the fact that you weren't born in Canada, (laughs) you're extremely fluent in in English, not like me, that I have an accent. I think that that gives you an advantage because you can really manipulate the language. And I have to really watch myself on how I say things, where they come from, the accent attenuation, and so people perceive the emotion behind the language really well. So you're a great communicator. I know you're a huge also speaker across what we call the, the speaker circuit across the United States, specifically with the Center for Emergency Medicine Education. I know you go across the nation. You have the hard course specifically that you teach with one of the most world-renowned speakers in, in cardiology, Dr. Amal Matu who I respect very much so, and you're one of those. You have several books with your name on it that are about uh, reviews and questions and answers in emergency medicine and and hundreds of articles behind your name. I I mean, your resume is rather impressive. I mean, you're only 43. How how did you get here? Uh, What did someone see on you? What do you think was the things that someone saw on you said, Dr. Amer Aldin, I think uh, you're the person for the job because... Your performance over the last five years has been consistent. You brought the metrics of this experiment from here. To what was what they said? I, I don't know if there was ever that conversation or that moment or that mentor that told you that you were the right chosen person for the job. Yeah, I, no, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I wouldn't compare myself to Matu. But you work along with him. <laughs> I do. Yes, actually, um, I'm equally starstruck as everyone else. When I meet Amal Matu, uh, I get to spend time with him at the hard course and, and I get uh, kind of nervous. It's weird. Uh, it's like uh, he's like a nerdy superstar. It's, it's awesome. But um, yeah, I, I don't know that people singled me out and said, you're the person. I don't know that anyone really does that. I think you have to do that to yourself. I think you kind of have to say, I, I sort of said to myself, oh, why not me? What is what does anyone else have that I don't? And the fact is the difference between those who have, who have done things and those who have not yet done things is that you just haven't done things yet and it's time to do them. So I focused on accomplishment and getting things done much more than I focused on what it made me look like or how I wanted to be perceived about something. I, I really focused on the doing. I sort of parallel it to the tennis court. Uh, I might not be able to hit the ball as hard as you. I definitely can't, actually. Uh, Alonso hits the ball very hard uh, on the tennis court. By God, if I can't hit it as hard, I'm going to run as fast as I can to get oh, to yes. it. And so I, that's how I carry my, my emergency medicine abilities and, and successes, too, is I'm just going to run as fast as hard as I can. And if I get it done, I get it done. And it's great. 
And, and then I don't punish myself too much for the mistakes when I don't get them done. Cause believe me, uh, you trying to get something done, not being able to do it, you can forgive yourself a lot easier than you never, than if you never tried in the first place. Um, that's to not have tried is the problem. Uh, so I think the why not me and do your best at something that's really key. I sort of compare this to advice I give to more, more junior folks who are learning. And that is that when you're, when you're trying to join a committee or something like that, just remember the word, the word committee has the word commit in it. You have to commit to the committee. You got to go to the meetings. You got to go do the work. When someone says, oh, we should really do this, you should say, I'll do that. I'll volunteer for that. This is a, a, uh, a bit of advice I got from my residency director, Dr. Jamie Collings. She used to say, when you go to a committee, what do you do? You volunteer for work. Is anyone going to pay you for it? No, no one's going to pay you for it at first. But if, but if you do work consistently, if you volunteer for work, if you get it done, and then you get something else done, then you get something else done. And it builds on that. And suddenly, people start seeing the value in that. So you go from volunteer work, accomplishment, multiple accomplishments, and someone's like, hey, we should pay you for that. And suddenly, that's how you build your career. I parallel this to the uh, question book, the review book that myself and my colleague, Dr. Rosenbaum, in uh, Wake Emergency Medicine Physicians, he's a, he's a friend of mine from, from medical school, actually. And he and I wrote this review book on emergency medicine board review questions. You know how we wrote it? We used to test each other by writing each other questions. Wow. So he and I were at the same time in residency in Chicago. He was at Cook County. I was at Northwestern. And we used to say, hey, let me write you 10 questions. You write me 10 questions. This is how we'll study for the boards. And at one point, we're like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if someone uh, uh, offered to publish these questions? And then we laughed about it. And then I ran into, to randomly to a guy who worked at uh, Lippincott Publishing, Walters Kluwer Publishing. And we got to talking. I said, yeah, this idea. And he said, oh, let me know. Let me know how it goes. We started writing more. He contacted us again. And, and that was it. So it's because we wrote the questions without any, without any thought that, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this published. Or I'm going to do this. We did the work that we knew was needed to be done. Later, people will, will, will award you for it. So foreign medical grads, international medical grads, medical school, you do the same thing. You do observerships, you do research, you follow and attending for months, weeks, you sacrifice yourself, you put in the effort, not expecting anything in immediate, an immediate reward for it. Eventually, obviously, there is a goal that you want to accomplish, but you would, I would say that what you have said is the, the most critical thing. I'm going to give an example of a personal mistake. Uh, I was meant to go uh, bi-monthly to the Code Blue meetings. And, and one month, I happened to forget about it. I didn't put it on the schedule. I skipped the meeting. And rather quickly, I escalated to my supervisor that I had not attended the meeting. But they were just wondering if that they really wanted the input of the emergency department in the meeting and how crucial it was for me just to be there to give our perspective on how we felt about how we ran the codes for the department. And and seems to be something so trivial, but if people are expecting you to be there, you better be there. And believe me, in, in America, you must be there. If I had to learn that the, the tough way. Sometimes with my Latin American Colombian mindset, it's a little tough. Sometimes I used to joke about Colombian standard time, CST, not central standard time. And, and that's true for my culture. It doesn't mean that it happens to everybody. My father is very anal about being on time, but 
but we're very relaxed people. And once you touch the grounds of the United States, oh Lord, you better show up, you better perform and commit, right? That's uh, absolutely right. And I don't think that the, the uh, not, not being on time stuff is specific to Colombian culture or Latin American culture. Those of us who are Indian and Pakistani understand that uh, there's, there's something we call Desi standard time. Uh, the word Desi is a, is a uh, kind of a catch-all term for this Indian subcontinent. So Desi standard time means a little bit late. And you know this is true if you go to a Desi wedding and you find that, uh, you know, no one's there except for the non-Desis who showed up when the, when the invitation says to show up. All the Desis know you show up an hour and a half to two hours later. So, Hey, since you brushed up on that, we spoke off the microphone that obviously your parents are immigrants uh, from India and Pakistan. I don't know who and who comes from where, but the point is that you were born in Canada. And you had a lengthy discussion with dad many, many years ago about becoming a professor of uh, religious studies or becoming a doctor. Now, 20 years later, 25 years later, when you sit, that, sit down with Aldine Sr. and you have this conversation and he sees your resume and how far you made it in life, what's his thoughts on that, on that discussion? Does he say, hey, I told you you were going to be right? <laughs> Yeah, no, he definitely pats himself on the back for that one. I, I think uh, it was a great conversation, actually, at the time. And I, I can't thank him enough for that conversation. You know, he used to say, do something of value to the world. That, that was his biggest thing. Don't, don't sit and write books that no one's going to read. Do something of value to the world. Take care of people. Contribute to the world. And you can do that much better as a physician than you can as a, as a historian or a writer or professor. So that was his big thing is contribute to the world. I, I, think, uh, I think his advice is, is really important. And it really is the reason I do what I do. The, the mission uh, of taking care of patients is, is really a contribution to, to life. And when you look at all the greatest physicians in the world, in the history of the world, uh, Hippocrates, Galen, Ibn Sina, uh, Maimonides um, and uh, Osler, you look at all at Blackwell, Virginia Apgar, these people didn't do it for title or, or, or accolades or, or anything. These are because they knew it was the right thing to do. That's why they did it. They did it because this was the mission is to care for patients. Those of us who have cared for COVID patients now, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You, you all stayed when people were closing down stuff, you all stayed in the acute care setting. You all took care of patients. You all put yourself at risk. That's what the mission's all about. That's what the passion is. That's what the profession is. We exist for that. And uh, that's why they call us heroes. It's not some slogan. It's, it's a real thing. Two things. One thing I feel uncomfortable about sometimes is to brush up with or approach the C-suite, what they call in America, the CFO, the CMO, the CEO, the CNO, nursing officer, all these C people that are extremely powerful within a hospital or a hospital system or a company. How is that relationship behind closed doors? How do you establish a connection or a rapport with these people that sometimes I just kind of look up upon the sky and think that they're up in a big uh, loungy bed, just kind of calling the shots? How's that relationship with with, with you now or how it has progressed over the years? 
It's an excellent question. So there's no magic behind that C-suite level. It's not like there's suddenly uh, this new level of folks that, that you can't approach that are totally unapproachable. The fact is that they are highly skilled, highly organized people who have excellent personal skills as well. Uh, If you've ever met a C-suite person, they tend not to be mean or in your face. (laughs) They tend to be very pleasant and nice, very smart, very uh, highly communicative, uh, and, uh, and are able to absorb without letting, you know, bouncing things off. So if they get negativity in, they tend to absorb it or they tend to exude positivity back. Those are very hard to do. The way that I've approached uh, meeting with any C-suite person, the simplest thing is think about what a C-suite person does on a daily basis. And usually it's a deal with problems. They're usually trying to solve problems. Everyone comes to them with a problem. No one comes to them with, oh, hey, this awesome thing happened. That happens once every maybe 50 times someone talks to them. It's usually this problem, that problem, this problem, that problem. So let me challenge all of your your listeners to say the next time you go to a C-suite person and you're talking to them, try to bring not just a problem, try to bring a solution. Try to bring like three ideas for the problem that you have. The, The best way to move up in administrative circles is to not be a problem identifier, is to be a problem solver. So you have to identify the problem to solve it. So that's the first step. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So you want to solve the problem as well, or at least offer solutions to solve the problem. That's really important. And and I think that's the difference between someone who's an experienced C-suite person and someone who's a a bit of a middle manager is that the C-suite person really takes ownership and accountability and tries to solve them. So ownership and accountability. And you, you and I had texted back and forth that being an, and you mentioned being an intelligent problem identifier is a colossal waste of talent. I think that phrase was beautiful right on. So just yeah, bring I me think, solutions. Don't bring me problems. And if you bring me a problem, bring me a solution, right? Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, what I see a lot with, with physicians who are not yet into that leadership step is that they're really smart people. So they're able to identify the problems and they're able to articulate them very well. The, the entire thing that separates a physician leader from just physician is that the leader thinks about the solution as well and is able to describe that as articulately, even if it's a potential solution, but is able to describe the solution as articulately as they describe the problem. And I think that is a a very big step that you need to take. Emotionally, it's hard to solve problems. Uh, You know, organizationally, it's hard to solve problems that usually they're not easy to solve. But giving attention to the solution is more important than actually identifying the problem in the first place. Wow. And the second question that I have for you, obviously, we spoke about personal development and, and in America and anywhere in the world, the resume is something critical. Having a strong CV resume is really critical. And Dr. Aldin's resume is gorgeous. It's fantastic. It's thick. It's about 14 pages long. It's very well written. Uh, always, uh, I can tell that it's been updated and kept the most up to date on every little thing that he has done. And that's extremely important. But how crucial is the, the CV for a uh, foreign medical grad? I mean, I, it seems that we forget about it after we're done with the ECFMG certification. And then when you have to do it again, it's like going back to square one and, and, and they don't know, we don't know what to do. How do you build something like this that is so beautiful looking? 
Yeah, so uh, I appreciate that question. It's really important. This is advice I got from my former chair, who's actually the CMO of Northwestern Medicine right now. His name is Dr. James Adams, extraordinarily smart guy, one of the greatest leaders I've ever met. And if you've ever heard him speak, you know what I'm talking about. His advice was, and he used to tell every resident this, I remember, put your CV on your computer desktop as a separate file. That way, every time you open your laptop or your computer, you see that file sitting there. And anytime you do something new, you have the chance to update it. I review hundreds, if not thousands of CVs every year for a variety of reasons. And what I notice uh, right away is someone who hastily prepared a CV, A, either won't have it updated or B, might have it updated, but will have tons of typos because they didn't update it in time or they didn't continuously update it. So I would say what you really need to do, put that CV file on your computer desktop, update it every time you do something new, make sure that the, the, uh, the document is free of typos, give it to an English major or something so who, who can look for those. So you know that really anal person who points out punctuation grammar, give it to them and say, okay, you find all the errors in this and then get, get it back to me. And that way you can keep your CV updated and it grows without you having to put hours and hours at any given time. Every five, 10 minutes, that's all it takes to update it. Yeah, that's, that's gold. And we have spoken about it to the foreign grads that, during the process of the application. And right now, their CVs are being looked at and they're getting ready for the interview. And, and by the way, I think we have the perfect, and let me change the topic quick, the perfect layout and setting. Nice lighting for this interview, great sound, good microphone, Quiet background, no interruptions, no distractions, very smooth, easy interaction, and we're trying to stay away from biases. So I think we have the right setting. So guys, remember, find yourself an awesome computer, a great microphone like Dr. Aldin did, and a stable internet connection, and, and make it happen because this, right now it's rolling it smoothly, and I'm, I'm really happy to, to be doing this with him. Also, over the years, you said that as a doctor, as a physician, as a person, we must become experts at something, specifically for us, the, the general emergency physician, the internist, be good at something, span on that. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that we understand as generalists is we get to do a lot of different things and we kind of like that. We, we like to be able to manage chest pain and manage abdominal pain and then manage a neuro complaint and then manage a fracture. That's what we do in emergency medicine. In primary care, it might be diabetes or hypertension and suddenly it goes to you know anorexia, bulimia and then uh, depression. As a, as a hospitalist, you have your own set of things that you see, but, but generally, you are a generalist. You actually see a number of different things. What I will submit to you is that it really does help to be good at a lot of things, but if you can take yourself to that next level, I don't mean to the fellowship level. I don't mean be that expert, but I mean be as much of an expert as you possibly can as a generalist in some area of your uh, clinical practice. Uh, I'll tell you what I did. Uh, and, and the way you do this, I think, is you, you know those patients and those chief complaints, when they come in, you get excited. You're like, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, some people get excited by DKA. They're like, oh, I, I love thinking about the electrolyte shifts. And I love thinking about how the potassium might look high, but it's not really high. And the insulin glucose, some people like that. Some people like ACS and STEMI. And let's see how fast I can get them to the cath lab. What I loved when I was in the emergency department, of course, you know, not, not that I loved that people were sick, but I, I loved the challenge of trying to take care of patients in cardiac arrest. When I heard 
code coming in, to me that was, okay, it's go time. I can only do five things. I'm going to do them as well as I possibly can. And I love taking care of cardiac arrest because I thought this person has a 92% chance of dying and I'm going to reduce that chance. I'm going to, I'm going to give them a chance to live. And that's what I used to think. So what did I do? I read everything I possibly could about cardiac arrest. I, I knew ins and outs of cardiac arrest. I knew all about it. Wow. It's not that uh, you know, I was a dummy when it came to belly pain. It's just that I didn't know as much about the finer nuances as I did about cardiac arrest. And eventually, once you pick that one or two clinical areas, you become an expert and people start coming to you then with questions. Let's say you're the sepsis expert. They're going to want to know what lactate level uh, mandates XYZ. Be that person. Be that person who's the expert in that thing especially the thing that's important and everyone will, will come to you for it. I always tell my emergency medicine colleagues, how many amazing lectures do you see on dermatology, dermatologic emergencies or ophthalmologic emergencies? You don't see that many, right? They're rare. If you're the derm person or if you're the opto person, people are going to come to you with questions and that's good. That means that you have attained a level of knowledge and a level of trust that they will come to you with that, that. And having that expertise is extremely important as you succeed in administrative realms because you will be known as the clinical person who's the expert here. And that gives you a certain degree of, of, of uh, credibility when it comes to administrative problems. So as a leader and being part of the C-suite of uh, US uh, Acute Care Solutions, how do people perceive you now when you work your clinical shifts? Do they look at you differently? Do they act differently around you because you are so quote unquote powerful inside the company? Do colleagues behave differently around you on the way they talk and what they say? Or you continue to see the same Dr. Amaral Dean that you always have been or has anything changed about your core? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's changed. Uh, I, you know, I'm not nearly as fast clinically as I used to be. I, I think I'm still accurate clinically, but I don't work that much anymore clinically. So I have in some ways transitioned to more of an administrative person than I ever was, less of a, of a clinical person than I ever was. Uh, whether people act differently around me, they probably do, but certainly I don't have the level of power that, that one might think. I actually, our C-suite is is relatively low key and we're really not seen as as the the big bad leaders who can do xyz at least i hope not i've tried to make myself as approachable as possible and uh, i do get emails from around the country from our 1400 full-time physicians from our 800 full-time pas and nps i get emails you know 5 10 20 emails a day uh, asking me various questions so i i don't think i'm looked upon differently but then you know maybe i am i don't know <laughs> Dr. Aldine, and as an emergency physician and clinical fellow of the College of the uh, Emergency Physicians, I obviously have a bias towards emergency medicine, but this is my personal perception of what I have seen and trending over the last few years, and here is what I see. Emergency medicine physicians are positioning themselves in leadership positions more and more and more. Why? Because I think we understand how the system works how we relate to consultants. We deal with the nuances of the daily situations in the emergency room, the drama, the disease, the nursing interactions, the interactions with the C-suite in the ED. But I think the ER doctor has become the ideal CMO for a system because we really know how to take care of disasters. What's your, your opinion on this? 
Yes, I think emergency medicine docs are uniquely poised for this. There's a couple other reasons in addition to the ones you mentioned. Number one, we work in teams very actively. We're constantly in a team and nurses are working with us. Techs are working with us. Paramedics might be working with us. You even have environmental who you're talking to, you know, to get uh, beds changed over, things like that. So we certainly have our pulse on, on the teamwork part of it, our hand on the pulse of the teamwork. The other thing we do really well, I think, and, and to a certain extent, hospital medicine uh, does this well and, and critical care does this well, is we prioritize action. We don't look at 50 things you have to do and just do them serially. We look at 50 things we have to do and organize them in our heads for what's the thing I have to do now, then what's the thing I have to do next, then what's the thing I have to do next. That automatic prioritization that we have because of acuity is really important in administrative circles. The ability to indicate what is urgent, what is important, what is both, and what is neither. That, that scheme, I, I think I, Dwight Eisenhower, one of the U.S. presidents, was the one who actually looked at that two-by-two two table of important and urgent. And that scheme, I think, and that, that layout is, is something that we sort of do intrinsically. So the prioritization, the teamwork, and then, as you said, uh, the ability to see lots of things going on in the hospital setting, knowing lots of people, knowing specialists, knowing generalists, knowing the PCPs, talking to people on the phone, all those is very good. So um, definitely emergency medicine, hospital medicine, I could add to that uh, as well, and, and critical care as well. Awesome. For our listeners, um, many FMGs come to America and said, no, America is the place to make lots of money. And I'm going to go on and be an internist. You know, they come from India. I want to be an internist. I want to be a nephrologist. I want to be a cardiologist, interventional, electrophysiologist. And everything is about making money. If there is no money, there is no effort. I'm not going to make the effort. I'm not going to show up because there is no money involved. You and I have discussed something and you wrote in a beautiful way. When there is no money, there is no mission. I think... That's a misperception that people have. I mean, there is not always, there doesn't have to have money involved for you to be able to accomplish something, correct? Yes, I think it goes back to the whole committee and commit thing is uh, some people feel that if you're not paid to do something or go somewhere, you're not going to do it. The fact is, how do you improve something if you have zero dollars? What can you do with zero dollars? If you can answer that question with two or three things you could do to make things better with zero dollars, you're on your way to leadership. You're on your way to admin because no one's going to give you money to do a bunch of stuff. Anyone can do stuff with a lot of money. It's all about what you can do without money than what you can do with a little bit of money than what you could do with a lot of money. You have to go through those no money steps first before you can get to the, uh, to the uh, high money, high stakes tables in, in, a, in a way. So I think, it's, it's very important to understand that uh, while money can solve a lot of problems, it's, it's a very scarce resource. And actually, the better ways to think of the low-hanging fruit and trying to accomplish that, and then the middle-hanging fruit, and then the high-hanging fruit. And uh, one thing that I've been personally improving myself for the last seven years has been how to improve myself is the way I have to carry myself. I, I would like to be a leader, but my personality keeps shining through and my colorful shirts and my demeanor. And I have, I try to tone it down. I try to make it more American proper. I, I try to be different, but sometimes I feel uncomfortable trying to be someone else that I, I am not. Is there a 
profile for a foreign medical grad that is coming from India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Africa, that has to be fit to be a successful leader or administrator within the healthcare of the United States? Is, is there a, a form that we have to follow or how do you think that we need to groom ourselves better? I don't know. I, I, it's a little bit of a complex of inferiority that I have maybe. I mean, certainly that could be uh, internal to you or to everyone else who feels that way. I, I really don't think so. In fact, I, I think you should wear the brightest shirts you want to wear. I think that's, it's not uh, what you're wearing. It's not what your uh, beard looks like or, or the fact that you don't have a beard. It's not whether you're a female and have short hair or long hair. It's not any of that stuff. It, it okay. really is how you carry yourself, how you communicate with people. Do you look people in the eye? Do you learn their names? Do they make sure they learn your name because they need to be nice about it, but make sure they learn your name and be nice about it and make sure you learn their name and, uh, and, and do good work. I, I think uh, medicine and healthcare really does favor uh, merit and it favors hard work and it favors humility and, and, uh, and it truly is a meritocracy. So I have lived that myself. Uh, I, you know, I'm not a, a traditional white male. Uh, I'm I'm non-white, obviously, and um, and that that hasn't held me back. If I don't let it help hold me back, I, I think a lot of that is in our heads. Okay. A lot of it is not. There is a degree of of uh, racism that occurs in every field, and that includes medicine as well. I would say it's not as overt in medicine as as any other field because. Hey, in, in medicine, we learn very quickly that, uh, you know, healthcare, uh, I'm taking care of patients doesn't really have or shouldn't really have colors and physicians in all of history uh, have taken care of uh, and all colors have taken care of all colors themselves. And uh, the, the female physicians uh, have developed, uh, you know, extraordinarily good leaders in, in uh, recent times as well. So, I really think that it has more to do with how you communicate, how you learn, how you internalize uh, uh, feedback, how you get better than it does what you look like, what color you are, what gender you are, what your sexual orientation is, what your gender orientation is or gender identity is. That stuff matters, but it, matter, it should matter to you personally. And you give your best foot forward uh, when, uh, when you're working professionally. Wow. Words of wisdom. One last tip of advice that you would give to a doctor that says, okay, I want to come to America. I want to be an internist. Okay. But then I realized that practicing medicine in the United States is not what I expected. I want to go into administration. Let's just go for it. What would you say to that person? What can they do to target that? Yeah, I think a few things. Number one, uh, figure out what it is about clinical medicine you don't like. And then understand, number two, that administration is solving problems. It's the ability to solve problems and not get upset every time you encounter a problem. And, and so if you're able to solve problems and able to look at yourself and grow and learn to solve problems, uh, you'll do well. Remember that as a physician, you've undergone probably the hardest educational training of any other profession. I mean, there's, there's others that are hard too. So I'm not saying we're the best, but certainly we're at least tied for the best. <laughs> so, so I think that everyone has, if you're a physician, every, you've, you've done the necessary work you need to do to, 
succeed at a high level, the success in administration really is a different ball game, which you have the tools to succeed at, but don't assume that you've already succeeded at it. Understand that there's hard work that goes into it. Those administrators who are non-physicians at the C-suite level, they are extraordinarily smart people who have worked really hard to get where they are. And, uh, and that's something you have to do as well. So it's a different ball game, but it's one we can play. Uh, so let's play it. Amazing. And so Dr. Aldine, it's been an hour of just wisdom and awesome personal life experience. And I want to finish it by asking you the following. What is the one thing that you remember and will never forget that was giving us a constructive criticism and feedback to you that definitely potentially changed your life or the way you saw things around you? Yeah, that is a great question. I think probably because I am so go-getter, type A personality, want to get things done, I need to have patience. I'm an emergency room doctor. I'm naturally impatient. Uh, I want to get things done well, but I want to get them done fast. And I want to go, go, go. And sometimes I need to sit back and be more patient, not just with, you know, administrative work, but with clinical work, listening to patients better than I do the 60 seconds of listening before you start suddenly interjecting. Same thing in a meeting, finding what I want to say and then just saying it. No, step back and shut up for a second. And then the answer will come. Just give it a second. And so to me, I struggle with that, uh, being an ER doc and, and being kind of a, a very intense person. I think uh, it's, it's really hard for me. I, I have to struggle with it on a daily basis. I don't think that struggle ever ends. I, I think that will be my whole life. But yeah. as long as I remember it, and as long as I'm humble enough to accept that I need to change it, I think I'll, I'll do my best. I'll leave, I'll leave with a quote from Thomas Edison. And this one I really feel is, is true. And that is, Thomas Edison, the great inventor said, I have never failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that won't work. And so it's really all about trying your best, being humble, forgiving yourself, and then learning from your mistakes. Well, guys, Dr. Admiral Dean has said it. So take advantage of that. Just, just put in the best effort. I know you guys are really struggling right now and dying to know if you're going to get any interviews. Your applications have been now downloaded since uh, September 1st. This is the anguish time before you actually get or know many or no interviews. It's going to be frustrating times, but uh, we have successfully completed 44 episodes and we continue to grow. And this is episode 44. I am so glad that you came, Dr. Aldin. It's been fantastic. I just hope everybody likes it. And I want feedback, guys. Remember, feedback is crucial. Get a hold of me at info at osoriomd.com or alonsojosorio at fmg-imgcast.com. And please take five seconds of your life. If you think that Dr. Aldin and I did a good job, Leave us a five-star review if you guys think that we deserve five stars. A one-star won't help me. It will just kill me on the ranking. <laughs> and, but if we did, an honest, truthful feedback will be greatly appreciated. Contact me. Send me an email. Thumbs up. Like me. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. And as I said, bigger things are coming. Osorio MD is here to say. And thank you for, for being here today, Dr. Aldine. 
Thank you, Dr. Osorio. I really appreciate it. It's been amazing.